such a privilege this morning to be in your presence again. We are your sons. We are your daughters. It's just so good to be close to Daddy. We praise you, our Abba. Thank you, Lord God, for loving us, for claiming us, for holding us close to yourself right now, wherever we are, in a sanctuary or in our pajamas. close, Lord Jesus, we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, we are skipping over one episode in The Chosen. Don't feel bad about that. We'll reclaim it on Palm Sunday. We're going to have a special Palm Sunday this year. Uh, We're going to look into actually experience the, the significance of the Lord's Supper and the Passover and all the ties between those two that enrich it, and particularly how Jesus fulfills it and reshapes it to bless us uh, today. It's going to be a powerful, you know, we just so happened when we hired our receptionist that we hired a Ph.D. in Hebrew studies. Did you realize that? So, so Corinne uh, is a great gift to us, and uh, we want to bring some of her gifts to bear to bless all of you. And so she'll be sharing with me in that uh, particular message on Palm Sunday. Uh, It's going to be a great Easter and a wonderful time to look forward to. So though we're skipping episode two, which was much about the Sabbath and uh, the sacred meals and traditions of the Jews, we'll deal with that Palm Sunday. We got to skip ahead to what is an episode that many people who have watched the entire series have told me that this was their favorite episode. And it's interesting to me that it was their favorite because it's almost totally conjecture. It's about children and about Jesus' interaction with children. And uh, I would have never thought to have made a whole episode about it. But it's so appropriate. And the episode, even though it's about children and the way Jesus reacts to the children and responds to the children and interacts with them and teaches them and loves them and affirms them, it's beautiful. It's really not an episode just for children. It's mostly an episode for adults who have forgotten how to be children. Children in the presence of God. And so, one little clip this morning from that episode of The Chosen as the children have gathered around Jesus. Where were you yesterday? Let's turn it up. I had to stay in town later on. There was a woman who needed my help. Did you bug something for her? No. You remember when I said that I have a job that is bigger than my trade? There is a woman who has had much pain in her life. And she was in trouble. So I helped her. Is she your friend? She is now. And I have chosen her and others, and more soon, to join me in traveling. Do they know you? Not yet. But what if they don't like you? (laughs) Many won't. This is my reason for being here. I still don't understand. What is your reason for being here? I'm telling you this 
Because even though you are children, and the elders in your life have lived longer, many times adults need the faith of children. And if you hold on to this faith really tightly, someday soon, you will understand all of what I am saying to you. But you ask an important question, Abigail. What is my reason for being here? And the answer is for all of you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah. Isaiah. I have loved spending this time with you. You are all so very special. And I hope that my next students ask the same questions you do, and that they listen to my answers. But I suspect they do not have the understanding you do. And I hope that when the time comes, they will tell others about me, like you have. Jesus. As we watched it this morning at nine o'clock, there were a few of us there that talked about it there afterwards, and we were fascinated uh, with all that we saw. We just, I asked that group um, what they saw about Jesus, and I think uh, there were many things about Jesus that touched our hearts because we were seeing it through their eyes. Things like how approachable Jesus was. Do you remember if you saw the episode, how welcoming he was from the beginning? The kids were apprehensive. They were a bit scared. You never know what you can expect from an adult if you're a kid, right? And yet he welcomes them almost playfully. He's attentive to them. He pays attention to who they are and to, to what they need. That they come and they almost, uh, he says, well, you can stick around. Why don't you help me out with some things? And, and they uh, work with him. But it's obvious that they're not enjoying the work so much as they're enjoying the work being with him. I need to remember that as an adult. He, he's attentive to them. He, he's affirming. He's affirming. He sees their particular gifts, and he addresses them as individuals. Joshua the brave, he calls the one boy that's a little bit cautious. Joshua the brave. You can almost see him square his chest and live into it. He, he, he's attentive. He's, he's affirming. He's so good for them and so good to them. 
He thanks Abigail for bringing her friends along and for bringing them to him. There's so many things that these kids do seemingly even better than the adults will do later. There are times, he says, where adults need the faith of children. He thanks Abigail, thank you for not taking my food yesterday. He notices. And then he gives her a plate of fruit. He recognizes, he's attentive, he's affirming, he, he's so approachable. And that's with children. Now, to be honest, that's not what the disciples in his day would have expected. In Matthew 9, 13 to 14, the children are around and uh, they're beginning to press in on Jesus and the disciples hold them back. And you... It doesn't say particularly why, but you can put yourself in their shoes. These are kids taking up the time of the Messiah, you know, the teacher, the, the great one. And, and, and so they, they, they hush the kids and they push them back and they're, they're holding them back and they rebuke the kids and Jesus rebukes them. He says, no, let the kids come unto me for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. You'd think they would have gotten it straight. In just the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been asked a question. I had to refresh my memory on what the question actually was. And it was this, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is greatest? Look around. Look around this morning. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? How, would you, how, would you, how do you assess that question? Who's the greatest? Is it, are you comparing houses? Are you comparing cars that we drove up in? Are you not so shallow as that? Are, are you comparing who prays the most? Who seems the most spiritual? Who has the most credentials? Who has the most power? Who is, at least this is what we called it in the junior high class when we filled out those little cards and put them in envelopes in order to affirm one another, who's the greatest all-around guy? If Jesus were standing here today and we just wanted to kind of get our place in the flock figured out, you know, start to rank who's really in the top 10%, if we were to ask him, Jesus, who's the greatest, would you be surprised if he left the room and went and got someone out of the nursery? But, but that's what he did. That's what he did. Now, I'm a grown Christian with some maturity. And that would have shocked me. What is he doing? He doesn't really mean this. This is just one of those teaching point kind of things, right? I mean, no one really takes this seriously. A kid's the greatest one. He's just making a point. That's what teachers do. This is hyperbole. Doesn't suggest that. He went and got a kid and put it in the child in front of them and said, this 
this is greatness right here. And he goes on and says, He called a child to himself and stood him in their midst. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted, adults, and become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Like children. What does he mean by that? Verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Oh my goodness. Jesus has all, all of a sudden become the Godfather there. Verse 6. I mean, this is Sicilian kind of stuff, isn't it? Is he serious? I think he's dead serious. I, I, I think we have such distorted understandings of what amounts to greatest. And because we misjudge greatness, we also misjudge that which is most lovable. This is a, an episode about children, but it's not for children, it's for adults. I, I, I really think it's for us. Just as that moment, when he brought a child before them, he wasn't just talking about the child, he was really... He was talking about them. This is a lesson for adults. It's one thing to see Jesus through children's eyes, but this morning we also need to see children, one another, through Jesus' eyes. I think they were shocked. Who's the greatest? That's an important question. What really is to be valued? Who? is to be valued, and what value are we to assign to them? There's a, a Christian concept that goes all the way back to Genesis 1. It's a Judeo-Christian concept, and not many people in that culture took it seriously, and many don't today. It's called the Imagio Dei, that we are created in the image of the deity, in the image of God. Let us then create humanity in our own image. God says in uh, Genesis chapter 1. And though because of the fall, that image has been broken and sin has found its way in, hear this, that Jesus, God, said over his creation and especially over humanity, it is very good. It is valuable. You are valuable. Every person you will ever lock eyes with has an equal amount of the imagio day within. They are valuable not because of what they can do for you or what they can do for the state, but because they are valuable to whom they belong. And that is God who created them. Our founding fathers come after Jesus. They said, it is self-evident. We hold it to be self-evident that all people are created equal. They actually said all men. They didn't realize they were using politically incorrect language at the time. Give them a break. 
We're still living into this Imagio day. And I think Jesus was trying to step us forward in it a bit when he took a child and set him in front of us and said, think about greatness again. Think about value again. And you see today in our culture when we forget that each of us are endowed with the Imagio Dei, not just certain inalienable rights, but we're endowed with value from our Creator. If we forget that, if we displace that in our culture, if we set that aside, being in a post-Christian era that is now more enlightened, I'm telling you, the value of people will plummet. What becomes value, a person's value outside of the Imagio Dei is just humanism. It's secularism. It's total, total, you're only valuable to the, event, to the extent that you are valuable to the state or are valuable, to, valuable to someone else in someone else's eyes. Humanity becomes cheap when we put another value tag on it other than the tag that God has put on us. And if you're going to set the Judeo-Christian system aside, my friends, if you're a humanist that thinks things will go well after that, God help us all. Who do you think will be those undervalued first? It'll be those that are less productive, less valuable to us, or less valuable to the state. It'll be those that are too old to be productive or too young to be productive. How do we justify 350 million babies taken in the womb? What kind of thinking makes that all right? Well, what's tissue worth? What can tissue do for you? It's a value system. And it's being lived out in our culture. We say it's not our value system, but, but Jesus put this child in front of those who were believers that at least many of them were Jews. They, they had this understanding that, that people were not disposable, but that's not the way the Greco-Roman culture understood it in the day. In their culture, according to their law, children were disposable. Plutarch said that they, they weren't even really persons. They were more like plants until they became useful to their parents. In Roman law at the time, children weren't considered persons. They were considered property, property of their parents. Are you aware of this? That the parents had the right to... Dispose of their child if they chose. Many did. Many did. If a child isn't inherently valuable, then you must weigh that child's existence based on how many ways do you want to split your inheritance? If you're poor, you have to decide, is that child worth the investment and the sacrifice it's going to take in order to raise it up? And many people in those days, frankly, didn't. They did the math. 
And so it was completely lawful if you were a parent in the Greco-Roman era to take your child and to just discard them. There have been archaeological finds where hundreds of little children were found in a sewer. They were disposable. They were disposable because they would be inconvenient. They were disposable because they were costly. They were disposable especially if they were uh, disabled or, or um, deformed in any way. In fact, there was a Roman law that said if you had a son that was horribly deformed, it was important for you to be sure to drown that child within the first week of its life. It was a law. It was in that kind of culture, in that kind of world, that Jesus took a child And in fact, in those days, uh, it was common. There were thousands of, uh, of little Greek Roman names based on uh, a particular word. I think it was uh, I don't want to get my tang tangled and say this wrong. Uh, Copras. Copras. Copras is a Greek word for dung. And many children's names are actually based on variations of that word. Copras. Dung. That's where they were often left to be exposed. That's what they called it in those days. Discarded by legal exposure. You could be exposed if you were found unwanted, unaffordable, deformed. Uh, If you were a mamzer, Jesus was a mamzer. Illegitimate, there's words for mamzers in every language, but most of them are ugly. With a life expectancy of some 30 years during that time, many, many orphans were common. They were left on their own in many cases. Jesus says, get used to a new kind of different. Children will be valued in my kingdom based on whose they are and whose image they bear. They are of such worth that God in heaven is attentive to the faces of their guardian angels at all times, Jesus says. They're worth his attention. They have worth. They have value. That's what Jesus is saying. They have value not only inherently in whose they are and in who they are and in what they are, sons and daughters of the living God. He created them. But they have virtue. He picks up an important virtue, that they are humble. One of the most difficult virtues for those of us who are an adult. Jesus came to change all that. To give us value based on the way God evaluates us. It's a a deferred value from, from God's relationship to humanity. 
humanity has inherent value. He created us that way. We hold these truths to be found self-evident, that we are endowed with certain inalienable rights by whom? Jesus' word in the Judeo-Christian tradition has apparently seeded and sifted its way into our value system, but it's often not recognized necessarily as such. After Jesus, you have the church in the very first century of its existence outlawing things like exposure. They would be different than the culture that was around them. Outlawing things like infant infanticide, outlawing abortion. By the third century, it was an emperor who had become Christian that finally outlawed it throughout all the Roman Empire. And along the way to that, there were these organizations starting up that had never existed before. These Christians would, would not throw away kids, they would round them up. And their reputation for rounding them up became so known and so widely understood that people then, instead of exposing their kids, would take them to the monasteries and to the church, 